Dennis Earl Green was an American football coach. During his NFL career, Green coached the Minnesota Vikings for 10 seasons. He coached the Vikings to eight playoff appearances in nine years, and he was posthumously inducted into the Minnesota Vikings Ring of Honor in 2018. He was the second African-American head coach in NFL history, and almost more importantly, he left a lasting legacy in the way he touched the lives of his players. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. Friends and sports fans, <laughs> did I throw you off a little bit? Today we're talking about Denny Green, athlete and football coach. And I have with me for today's sports announcing my son-in-law, Porter. Hey, Porter. Hi, thank you for having me on. Welcome. Porter, I knew you were the person to co-host this episode. You're one of the most diehard football fans I know, plus the most loyal Arizona Cardinals fan that is out there. He's even wearing his Arizona Cardinals shirt today. Came properly themed. That's great. Our guy, Danny Green, actually coached the Cardinals for a bit. Yeah, when I heard this one, it was interesting because I didn't watch football when I was a little kid. It wasn't until like high school. And so the first Cardinals coach I remember was Danny Green and when they hired him <laughs> and how excited we all were. So That's cool. He is our most recent historical life that we've covered on the podcast. Everyone else has kind of been early 1900s, so he's the most modern guy that we've talked about. But before we get into Denny's life, let me tell you about where I found him. He's resting in the cemetery for the San Luis Rey Mission in Oceanside, California. We've been vacationing in Oceanside for the past 20 years, and we've always just passed the mission on our way into town, and we're always saying, we should go there sometime. Well, this summer, we finally did it, and we went and checked out the mission, and it was really a cool place. The church, the mission itself, is circa 1890. The San Luis Rey Mission Church, the 18th in the 21 original missions established by Spain throughout California, is among the finest existing examples of Spanish colonial architecture in all of the state. The building is one of only two cruciform or cross-shaped churches ever built by the Spanish in the region. Founded in 1798, San Luis Rey de Francia Mission was erected between 1811 and 1815. The present church is the third one constructed on the site. At the time of its completion, the church was the largest building in Northern California, which is interesting because it's really Southern California. I say, I consider Oceanside Northern. But. <laughs> San Luis Rey is known today as the king of all the California missions and the church stands as a National Historic Landmark, recognized for its significant contribution to the Spanish and Mexican heritage of the Western United States. 
it is still in use as a parish church. The main facade of the church features a mix of Baroque and classical styles, including a 75-foot-tall bell tower at its eastern corner. The tower rang a chorus of eight different bells in the 1800s, but only four hang within its belfry today. And they actually chimed while we were there. Oh, that's cool. And it was cool. Both the original floor and roof of the Mission Church were of terracotta tile, and by 1829, a wooden dome sat atop the building. The octagonal dome had an eight-windowed lantern that filtered light down into the nave and crossing below. The restored dome remains today and is unique among all of California's Spanish missions. By the mid-19th century, the San Luis Rey de Francia missions landholdings were expansive with over 3,000 converted native people living at the mission and helping tend the land and care for 50,000 head of livestock. Wow. They produced grapes, oranges, olives, wheat, and corn on the property. Today, San Luis Rey Mission Church is a part of the restored mission complex that sits on 56 acres of its original land. Franciscan friars still study, worship, and live at the mission and it is highly regarded as both a religious and heritage site. The church is among the most stunning of all the Spanish mission churches and is a popular tourist attraction in Southern California. Original patterns found in the church's old documents and on remnant textiles decorate the interior. Outside, the church is believed to look much as it would have when originally constructed. Inside, you'll walk into a church that has side altars, not seen at other mission churches, and the Madonna Chapel, which was once used as the mortuary chapel. And of course, the reason we are here is an extensive gated cemetery, the original mission cemetery that has been in use since the mission was founded in 1798. That's gotta be a really old one for West Coast. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I was thinking. You don't see things from the 1700s yeah. that much on this side of the country. In fact, it's the oldest burial ground in North San Diego County that's still in operation. So when you come in, you walk through an arched gate and on the left, you find the Franciscan crypts where lie the remains of many of the friars who lived and served the mission. So there's kind of a gate that keeps it closed, but you can look inside and you can see where each of their remains are placed and there's a plaque on the outside oh, okay. that says their names and when they served there at the mission. There's also the Indian Memorial erected in 1830 and it has a large cross. And the cemetery entrance also features the skull and crossbones commonly found at Franciscan cemeteries which I didn't know that that was Yeah, I think of pirates, either. so. <laughs> I know, that's something we've learned a lot about. The oldest part of the cemetery is up front and next to the mission. It's amazing to think that there are burials there from 200 years ago. The headstones are mainly crosses and are fairly simple. There are palm trees and other trees and grass, religious statues, 
several throughout the entire cemetery of Mary, um, scenes of the crucifixion, one of Christ. There's one bronze where Jesus is in Mary's arms after being taken off the cross, like the Pieta. Mm -hmm. There were several saints. There are columbariums for cremains and a very large new mausoleum. So it's got the old section and then as you go further around, it gets newer. And then off to the side, they've added a whole new area. So there's just acres of cemetery there. It's a really nice one. The newer grave markers are the ones that are flat to the ground. So it looks like a big grassy park mm. with trees. Mm -hmm. And there was also a section for infants and children, which was kind of Those sad. ones are always, yeah, see the short little dates on the headstones yeah Ooh. yeah or just one date yeah those always tug at my heartstrings for sure i believe that most of the people that are buried there are of the catholic faith because it is a catholic mission i don't know if today you have to be i know that in the past you did have to be catholic to be buried in that cemetery and not too far from the cemetery is another one that was called the Pioneer Museum, and that has the early pioneers of Oceanside. Oh, cool. And they weren't allowed to be buried in San Luis Rey yeah. Mission because they weren't Catholic. And so that one is actually not really in great shape, although groups have come in and worked on that to make it nicer. But I'm going to talk about that in another episode. <laughs> it was sunny and hot. It was the summer while we were there. And there were many bouquets of fresh flowers already left there. And we were there in the morning. So it was obvious that people had been there. There wasn't a lot of the bouquets of plastic flowers or big things like that. Maybe they have a rule that you can only leave fresh flowers. So it made it really pretty because everything was just... Fresh and smelled nice. And... Yeah, you'd walk by and smell roses and it was really a beautiful place. We found the grave of the man we're talking about today, Dennis Green. Of course, I had to dig in and find out about Denny. <laughs> and I just thought he had a really great story. There have been many professional coaches who've had a lot of success throughout their coaching careers. Coaches with many different types of personalities and ways of running their teams. Coach Green, I found, was definitely known for his personality. Denny Green grew up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. His father, Penrose Bus Green, was of Creole descent and worked as a postal worker, and he briefly played football for the Harrisburg Lions, a semi-pro team. Green's mother, Anna, was a beautician. Denny had hard times beginning early. He grew up poor, the youngest of five boys. He stated, things don't always seem fair, but you just have to charge on and try to make a difference. His father had always encouraged Dennis and his brothers to join the local boys club to quote, keep us off the streets and out of trouble. <laughs> the club proved to be not just a lifeline for Dennis, but gave him lifelong passion for football. He also suffered early tragedy when his father died when he was only 11 years old and his mother sadly died of breast cancer just two years later when he was only 13. Isn't that sad? Like, within yeah. two years, both of his parents... In that time of life, that's really hard for kids anyway. You and know, he was already kind of... having, like, a tough upbringing, and you used to hearing stuff like that from stories in the 1800s, not from... True. The 1900s, so... That's really true, in the 60s. 
Brain went on to attend John Harris High School and then went to the University of Iowa. In college, he started as tailback in each of his three seasons with the Iowa Hawkeyes. Then he graduated cum laude with a BA in finance. And according to Green, he was planning to go be a high school teacher if his football career didn't pan out. <laughs> Green then played briefly as a running back for the BC Lions of the Canadian Football League in 1971 and then worked in some assistant coaching positions at the University of Dayton, University of Iowa, and Stanford University under coach Bill Walsh. In 1981, Denny Green was named the head coach of Northwestern University, a school that had gone 1-31-1 in its last 33 games. Ouch. Which means, if you don't know much about football, that they had won one, lost 31, and tied one. So not good. <laughs> so that wasn't so good. So he had inherited quite the project. This was in 1981, and this made Denny only the second African-American head coach in Division 1A history. In 1982, Green was named the Big Ten Conference Coach of the Year. Wow. He left Northwestern in 1985, doing a stint as the wide receivers coach for the San Francisco 49ers, under his former boss at Stanford, Bill Walsh. In his last season with the San Francisco 49ers, they reached the 1989 NFL Super Bowl championship game in which Green made the play call that led to John Taylor's 10-yard touchdown reception from Joe Montana that secured the win with 39 seconds left. Then in 1989, Green took the head coaching position at Stanford University inheriting a team that had graduated 17 of its 21 starters from 1988. <laughs> oh! Yeah, bit of a rough time to be a new coach. <laughs> he was the first black Pac-12 coach. They were kind of a stagnant program at the time, and Denny Green helped revive their football program, starting to get the reputation as the project guy. Right! Green led the Cardinal from 1989 to 1991, and during that time, his teams finished with an overall record of 16 and 18, 0.471 winning percentage and went 3-0 in the big rivalry game against the Cal Golden Bears. <laughs> so have you seen clips of this game, Porter? I mean, I know you were really little, so you probably didn't watch the game, but it seems like they show clips of this game a lot. I know I've seen the clips. It's said to be one of college football's most iconic moments. Is it? The, I know the one with the Stanford band on the field, so if it's that one, I've definitely seen it. <laughs> Yes. Okay. Yes. The Golden Bears thought they had it won, and the student section and the band just started running out on the field celebrating, but there was still 12 seconds left. The clips, I mean, sadly, they're kind of yeah. hilarious <laughs> because there's like tuba players, you know, and trombones, and they're like jumping over players, and <laughs> the players are trying to run around them, and yeah, it's, it's kind of mayhem out there. So they got everyone off the field, and the kicker, he was actually practicing off to the side, just nailing footballs into the crowd <laughs> because his team had also taken down the practice net. Oh, great. <laughs> and so he's like, well, the fans are just getting some souvenirs yeah. today. And he's just blasting them off into the fans. And long story short, he goes out, nails the field goal, and they win 27-25. I read that it was one of the rare games in history that both student sections got to rush the field in celebration. <laughs> <laughs> 
I bet the one side felt a little embarrassed. Felt yeah. A little goofy. Yeah. Timing wasn't great. Oh, was <laughs> In 1990, his Stanford team knocked off the top-ranked Notre Dame on the road, and his tenure there culminated with an 8-3 record, which was Stanford's best since 1986, and the Stanford Cardinal made an appearance in the 1991 Aloha Bowl, where his team lost to Georgia Tech on a last-minute touchdown. Oh, that's rough. Although they have since had much success, Coach Green was the first to win at Stanford using the combination of a physical running game, West Coast passing attack, and an aggressive defense. David Shaw, Ed McCaffrey, John Lynch, Bob Whitfield, Tommy Vardell, and Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey all played under Green at Stanford. Wow. And then none other than his old head coach, <laughs> Bill Walsh, came and replaced Green at the Cardinal helm after the NFL came calling. On January 10, 1992, Green was named head coach of the Minnesota Vikings, replacing the retiring Jerry Burns. The day he was introduced as the Vikings head coach, he announced that there was a new sheriff in town. He would be only the second African-American head coach after Art Shell in the modern NFL era, and the first to do so without ever playing in the NFL. That's right, because he only played in Canada for a bit. Green's Vikings made eight playoff appearances in 10 seasons from 1992 to 2001, reaching the NFC Championship game in 1998 and 2000. He led the Vikings to a 15-1 regular season in 1998 and ranks second in franchise history in games coach wins and winning percentage, trailing Hall of Fame coach Bud Grant in each category. Green routinely invested in his players' life on and off the field and made sure they knew that he had their back. Perhaps there is no more evident example than when the Vikings took wide receiver Randy Moss with the 21st overall pick in the 1998 NFL Draft. While other teams stayed away from Moss in the draft, Green and the Vikings welcomed the lanky receiver with open arms. The move paid off as Moss caught 69 passes for 1,313 yards and a rookie record, 17 touchdowns in his first season in the league. I think as did some of the research on this, what stood out to me was a lot of the leadership qualities that Denny had. It wasn't just about the X's and O's, they say. Yeah. And in a statement, the Vikings said that Denny made his mark in ways far beyond being an outstanding football coach. He mentored countless players and served as a father figure for the many coached. Mm -hmm. And he also founded the Vikings Community Tuesday program, a mm -hmm. critical initiative that is now implemented across the entire NFL. Yeah. I think that's really cool that he's the one that got them doing this. And he knew that the players needed their Tuesdays off for rest and time away from the field, mm -hmm. but he still wanted to make sure that they found a way to make an impact with the platform they had. Yeah. And community service was his big thing. Dwayne Clemens said, I swear, every Monday they had that <laughs> meeting where he said, get off your butt out there in that community. <laughs> do something good for somebody. Do something good for your neighbor or for the city or for the county or whatever you're thinking and make us proud. 
and we all did that every week, and that became one of our biggest things. It didn't matter if players visited a school, hospital, church, or nursing home, Green just wanted them active somewhere in the community. I love that. He took great pride in helping assistant coaches advance their careers. His tenure as one of the first African-American head coaches in both college and the NFL was also transformative. Mike Tice, who served on Green's staff, called him a great motivator of men, a great teacher of coaches, mm. and that he had a great eye for talent. He found himself quoting Green with, plan your work and work your plan. I saw that several times, that that was kind of his motto. I've worked for companies that use a spin on that, and I didn't know it was... Oh. I don't know if he was the first one to use it, <laughs> right. but I, yeah, I so it stuck out to me when we were yeah. going through this. And that's a great one. Former Vikings receiver Matthew Patchett said, I learned to be a better person, a better man, a better leader. I don't think at that age I appreciated the position he was coming from and from where he was pointing me. Another former Vikings wide receiver, Tony Bland, said, I'll absolutely second that. Denny Green really helped turn me from a young man into a grown man. I appreciate it right now. Jason Fisk played for Green at Stanford and later with the Vikings. Fisk said he wasn't surprised to see Green have success in the NFL. He just had one of those personalities, an aura about him that would compel people to do what he wanted you to do. And it was always for the right reasons and for the good of everyone. Through his first six years with the team, Green never posted a losing record and the team qualified for the playoffs five out of the six years. Initially, Green earned widespread praise for turning around what had recently been a lackluster franchise. However, as the team's fan base grew accustomed to that regular season success, mm. Green came under criticism for failing to advance deeper into the playoffs. It's so rough to be yeah, a football coach. Standards get raised pretty quickly. Yes. In 2001, the Vikings finished with a losing record for the first time in Green's decade with the team. The Vikings then bought out Green's contract on January 4th, 2002. It's a pretty brutal profession. Man, isn't it? You could be on top for years and then have a few bad games or a down year and you are out on your can. Yeah, but Green did lead the way for other black coaches to get future head coaching jobs, and there have been many since. He basically helped carry the torch of that Vikings era of football. With his decision-making, he brought a lot of change to the organization, said Vikings Hall of Fame defensive tackle John Randall, who played for Green from 92 to 2001. He was a player's coach and took the first steps in saying, I'm going to do it and try it and go about it this way, and he had a lot of success with it. After spending two seasons as an analyst for ESPN, Green was hired as head coach by the Arizona Cardinals. 2004, our home Ooh. state team. <laughs> Through his first two years with the team, Green totaled 11 wins with the Cardinals and finished third in the NFC West, an improvement over his predecessor. The 2006 season began with great expectations for the Cardinals with the opening of the new stadium. They were having sellout crowds, the drafting of quarterback Matt Leinert, and the signing of Pro Bowl running back, Edrin James. After a solid start, the Cardinals suffered some tough early losses. The worst of these losses came in a Monday night football game on October 16, 2006. 
after losing a 20-point lead to the Chicago Bears in less than 20 minutes. I remember watching that one, and it was rough. And painful. Yeah. The generally soft-spoken Green <laughs> threw a tirade during a post-game media conference. <laughs> and in that conference, Green lashed out in response to questions about Arizona's tenacious defense that had forced six turnovers and for most of the game had shut down the Chicago offense. Mm-hmm. The quote coming up, a lot of people probably recognize, yeah. but the Bears are what we thought they were. They're what we thought they were. We played them in preseason. Who the hell takes a third game of the preseason like it's BS? <laughs> BS. We played them in the third game. Everybody played three quarters. The Bears are who we thought they were. That's why we took the damn field. Now if you want to crown them, crown their ass. But they are who we thought they were, and we let them off the hook. <laughs> now it's like the famous line is... But they are who we thought they were, and we let him off the hook. It's a good post-game rant. I mean, he just got madder and madder, and <laughs> they were just kind of poking the bear, and he just let loose. The day after that press conference, offensive coordinator Keith Rowan was fired and replaced. Although Green later apologized for the outburst, and the Cardinals rallied to win four of their last seven games, including a rare win over the playoff-bound Seattle, mm -hmm. Many pundits felt that the loss to Chicago and the tirade had already sealed Green's fate. Oh. Turns out they were right. On January 1st, 2007, the Cardinals fired Green with a year left on his contract. Again. Yep. Tough sport. Although the Cardinals had a losing record during Green's tenure, he is widely credited for helping build the team that just two years later would win its first NFC championship and play in the Super Bowl. And that's what always stuck out to me was other Cardinals fans that I talked to it was a lot of his players and the people he had brought in and developed that ended up building to that point. And then once those players started to leave, the team kind of went downhill again. But new stadium, new quarterback, all these expectations. But, I mean, you'd come into a team that had been pretty bad for ever, basically. <laughs> it sounds like he had done a lot, and it's those players that he brought in and, like you said, built up and worked with that really helped him in the next coming years, so we'll credit Green for that. Oh yeah. Green's famous tirade is still used in NFL media today, <laughs> often comically, to describe the obvious flaws of an opponent and the failure to capitalize on that. It's even been featured in a Coors TV ad. <laughs> yeah. Then in August 2007, Green was hired to serve as a color analyst on the Thursday night football broadcast. So after retirement, he moved to Carmel Valley and taught sports management classes at San Diego State University up through 2008. On March 11, 2009, it was announced that Green would be the head coach of the San Francisco franchise for the United Football League's inaugural season. He coached three seasons in the now defunct UFL. He also fought hard in a lawsuit against the UFL when he and many of the players didn't receive any payment. Yeah, so they were playing there they weren't getting paid yeah i remember some of these leagues trying to start up and the you know bankruptcy and money problems that happened and tough so he filed a lawsuit and then he also helped many of the players and being with his character too. and what else we yeah. felt about him yeah just fighting hard for everyone it wasn't just he went in and was like hey i'm getting paid he was like no everyone has worked really hard for the ufl and they deserve to be paid Green finished with 114 wins and 94 losses in his head coaching career with the Vikings and Cardinals. Still surprised that he never had like another opportunity in the NFL. He mm -hmm. took a Vikings team that had been good and right. tons of success. 
couple years off, starts to build the Cardinals, and they were getting better, and they brought in a new coach after him, and they got better even more quickly, but mm -hmm. people still, like we were talking about, credit him with building that up, so it's just surprising that no other team felt like he could have done more to help them. But. I agree. So I found a fun article and it was published on April 7th, 2015, and it was called At Home with Dennis and Marie Green. <laughs> <laughs> and it was an article about their beautiful home. The photos were just amazing and talking about the views and everything. But what I really liked about it was just like I felt like I learned a little more about his life outside of football. And it says that Dennis and Marie Green moved to San Diego in 2002 and that Marie is a fashion consultant and former flight attendant and that the couple had met on the team plane. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, could be a cute story. I know. I, I really wish I could find out more about it. Yeah. And Marie is a beautiful lady. She grew up in Minnesota and said that she had always dreamed in living in California. So she was glad that he <laughs> shared that dream. <laughs> so it shares all the details of their amazing North County coastal home and that they shared with their two teenagers, Vanessa and Zachary. And it had views of Del Mar racetrack and the ocean. It talks about the family's love of music. This was something that I hadn't. Yeah, had I you heard know. about this? No. You're gonna love this. <laughs> And something I learned was that the Greens once had their own independent record label, Savannah oh, wow. Street Music, with 25 artists under contract. Their contemporary jazz album, Sunset Celebration, Dennis is on drums. I had no idea. <laughs> Porter played drums back in the day. And they also had special guest Doc Severinsen on the trumpet. I mean, this is kind of going back a ways, but I'm sure some people will know who I'm talking about, Doc Severinsen, but he was the one on the Tonight Show with oh. Carson, and they would say, here's Johnny, and then that lead-in followed by the big band Trumpet Blast. That was kind of the landmark of late-night television for three decades, Johnny Carson, and so the band leader was Doc Severinsen. So. Oh. He played on I wouldn't album. have known who that was, so thanks for, for that. Yeah, well, but, you know, you're a little younger yeah, than me. <laughs> have to look up the deep cut of Denny Green and Doc. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So I thought you would appreciate that. The article also says, quote, the family home also features treasured memorabilia from Dennis's 36 years as a coach, including a jersey commemorating his 100th NFL victory with the Vikings. He said... I love helping people to become better. But Dennis is modest about his accomplishments and the color barriers he helped to break down. He insists that America was on the cusp of change when he was a boy growing up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, that doors were beginning to open for African-American athletes. When I came along, the opportunity to go to college was there in my age group and we were ambitious. I applied for my first head coaching job when I was 27 and couldn't believe I didn't get it, he said with a hearty laugh. He would have to wait four more years for the top job at Northwestern 
becoming the first African-American head coach in the Big Ten, like we talked about. Yep. That's still young to become a head coach. I think so. <laughs> Marie is his biggest fan, calling him a master strategist and leader. He is very inspirational, very motivating. He makes people want to go out and just get it done. Now retired from coaching, Dennis is a broadcaster on the San Francisco 49ers post-game wrap-up for NBC, a sought-after speaker, and the author of the autobiography, No Room for Crybabies. <laughs> I wish I had found this earlier because I think reading his book probably would have given me a whole lot more yeah, insight the, yeah, into who he is. So if you want to know more about Denny, check out his book, No Room for Crybabies. It goes on to say, it's the idea that you have to really learn to stand on your own feet, that things aren't always going to go your own way, that sometimes you could have some hard times. He served for 20 years on the board of directors for the Boys and Girls Club of Minneapolis and San Diego and was named to the club's National Alumni Hall of Fame. Wow. I love that so yeah. much. Just always involved with charity and trying to yeah. mentor and be a father figure for people his whole life. And being in the Boys and Girls Club back in the day was what totally got him playing football in yeah, the first place. Yeah, like so, full circle for him. Yeah, so you can see how he just had a love for that and was like, you know what, let's just help kids just have some good things to do with their time and it can lead to something big. Yeah. And his children also would volunteer at the clubs, continuing the family legacy. And then it said that the Greens are also actively involved with Cathedral Catholic High School. And that's where his daughter played volleyball and where his son played basketball and ran track. So they're pretty athletic as well. Yep. And of course that was written years ago. So, and you know, now they're grown, but at the time, and then has a picture of them in their home. I liked that. I thought that that was great. Sadly, Denny Green died on July 22nd in 2016 of complications of cardiac arrest. And he was only 67 years old. Wow. When Green passed away, the Vikings released a statement that said he mentored countless players and served as a father figure for the many coached. He took great pride in helping assistant coaches advance their careers. His tenure as one of the first African-American head coaches in both college and the NFL was also transformative. Our thoughts and prayers are with the entire Green family. A lot of the things that I found about Denny and what his players and people said about him were, there were so many articles and videos and newscasts that had been after he had passed away and yeah. just how sad that community was and what a loss that was. And they talked about him earlier being a player's coach, so I'm sure all the people he's interacted with over the years and I mean, yeah. decades working with different teams, that's a lot of different influences he's been able to provide. I think the autobiography too would be interesting going back to that because mm -hmm. he so much downplays his role in kind of breaking down some of those barriers, but it's only the second one in college and in the NFL to be a black head coach. And mm -hmm. I can't imagine some of the obstacles and bias and racism he had to kind of break through to do that and be successful at it. Mm -hmm. 
Denny Green, for all the years that I've been in this business, is the best coach I've ever been around or known with regards to an eye for talent. That was said by former NFL coach and NFL Network analyst Brian Billick. Whether it was the draft, whether it was free agency, whether it was getting the most out of the players that he had. Hall of Fame receiver Jerry Rice said, He was my wide receiver coach for so many years, and we stayed friends over the years also. So I'm real saddened by it. He really did a lot for my career because he was one of those coaches that never let me get complacent and he never let me feel like I had arrived. He was the type of coach that really influenced me throughout my career. He was more than a coach. He was almost like, you know, my best friend. Someone I could always depend on. Someone, when I was having some difficult times, he had something positive to say to get me going. And for Green to be one of the first African-American head coaches speaks volumes to how dedicated he was to the game of football. And he had a huge passion for the game and wanted to share his knowledge with others. And that's what he did. I think being a teacher was something that just resonated with him. Because even mm -hmm. earlier we talked about if football didn't work out, he was going to go be a high school teacher. And mm -hmm. just always trying to build up others. And I think with Denny's story, the thing that really drew me to him was all the things that I found from his former players and not just what he did for them as a coach, but what the man had meant to them and how he also helped them to be great men, fathers. He was a friend and such a role model and mentor. Yeah, we always think of him as a football coach because that's what he did. But mm -hmm. based on these stories, he would have had a life like this anyway whether it was football or something else that's a great point he would have always touched the lives of others that was just in him to yeah to do that and it was said of him too that he cared as much about the fringe players as he did about the superstars on the roster Not... i can't even do that so <laughs> <laughs> You're like i don't care about the fringe players <laughs> his widow marie said about her husband he really loved to teach. I know that he took a lot of pride in coaching the scout team. That was kind of his thing. It was a great way to get to know the guys at that level and really make an impact and teach them and get them to the next level. This was his favorite part. So here's just one last fun little <laughs> fact about Denny Green. He was in attendance at the 1962 NBA game in Hershey, Pennsylvania, where Wilt Chamberlain scored 100 points. Wow. <laughs> cool story there. Just a little fun fact about Denny. That was really great, and I appreciate you helping me tell Denny's story. I was glad to. I learned a lot about him because he's only with the Cardinals for a few years, and especially back then, there wasn't social media and all the things, so I don't feel like True. I ever got the same insight to him as a person as what I just did now. We all just kind of knew him for yelling about the bears and letting him off the hook. <laughs> we let him off the hook. <laughs> as I walked up to the resting place of Dennis Green, I saw that there was a new bouquet of fresh red roses and green hydrangeas. Someone had already come by this very morning to pay their respects to this man. A simple gray granite marker that says green at the top with Dennis and Marie, his birth and death dates, 
1949, and 2016. A symbol of a rosary in the center in the shape of a heart, and underneath, faith, family, football. And from everything I learned, that was everything this man was about. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com also don't forget to check us out on facebook like us on instagram follow us on twitter and leave us a comment we love to hear from our listeners